Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Good morning, Missio Day. We continue on this morning in our series in the book of Nehemiah. We've been here for a while and we're coming near the end uh, as we've been looking at this story and talking about what it looks like to, to rebuild, to look, uh, look towards the rebuilding of something that's been promised by God. So uh, as we go through this book, in this case, it's the rebuilding of the wall around the city of Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah is one of the people from the tribe of Judah who is in exile, um, but he's pretty much sitting pretty where he has ended up. He's the cupbearer to the king of Persia. So he's in a place of influence, of wealth, of great comfort. He's got friends in high places. So in the world of being in exile, Nehemiah has it pretty good. But in this position that he's in, he hears that the wall around the city of Jerusalem is in fact in ruins. And he responds to this with weeping with fasting and with prayer. And he approaches the king with radical faith and asks for not only permission, but provision to return back and go rebuild the wall. He asks for this because Nehemiah knows the story of God. He knows that this wall has been promised by God when the people return from exile. And so he leaned into that story that he already knew with prayer and with action. We've been talking about this. The wall not only meant protection for vulnerable people, very vulnerable people in that time and in that place, but it also stood for a sense of identity for the people of God who lived in that city. It represented God's provision for God's people there. But Nehemiah's leadership and Nehemiah's um, uh, guiding of this project represented more. It represented return return from exile, people being able to return back to their God, being reestablished in the place that God had promised for them to be together as God's people, not scattered in exile uh, under foreign rule. God had promised in multiple places through scripture, uh, including Exodus 6-7, I will be your God and you will be my people. This city was a part of that identity, that promised land. Last week, we talked about how Ezra read the scriptures to the people, and the people there realized their need for God's grace. And they bowed down, and they rejoiced that they discovered that this gift of grace was given when they returned to God. So, coming out of last week's reading of um, from Ezra reading from the law, we go through um, chapters 8 to 10 and hear the scriptures. They confess they've strayed and they return to God. Chapter 11, people physically start moving back into the city of Jerusalem. And now we're here in chapter 12, where the people celebrate as they dedicate the wall. And that's what we get to talk about today, a culture of celebration. When I realized that I had the privilege of landing on this week in our sermon rotation to talk about celebration, I thought this is the best topic ever. I had to talk about celebration. Who doesn't love celebration? I won't need any great convincing at all. I won't need to do any hard work. I'll get yes and amens virtually all morning long. This is great. We love to celebrate. We love when it's something big, like a new job or a birthday. I just celebrated my birthday, and we didn't do anything huge, but I was queen for the day. Who doesn't love that? We make little celebrations, moments when we complete an important task or something, and find little ways to celebrate small moments, too. 
It's so deeply in us. We've seen all these creative ways. I know they're not the same, but people have gotten so creative on how to still celebrate even in a pandemic because celebrating is so much a, a joyful thing. But there's something more going on here, something deeper than just celebrate good times. Well, that's so much fun. And yes, and amen to that. There's something else here, something deeper. We're seeing here a culture of celebration that is woven deeply into the DNA of this people group. This is joyful thanksgiving. It's a gratitude party, not just a celebration, but a gratitude party to thank God for what God has done. They go beyond a prayer of thanks. Although briefly, let me just say, if you aren't prone to gratitude, if you're not quick to see uh, thanksgiving and to offer that back to God, if you're not quick to see blessings, you're not alone. I actually saw this uh, cartoon that I think could parody prayer pretty well. It was um, two lines, like service windows. One was marked gratitude and the other was complaints. And the complaints line had a line that went all the way out of the cartoon picture while the guy in the gratitude booth was just sitting there bored because nobody was there. And I think it's kind of true of humans. We can kind of miss uh, naming things to be grateful for. Um, but that's okay. If that's you, it's okay. You, a great place to start practicing gratitude is to put a posture of gratitude into your prayers to specifically designate stopping and thinking, what can I be grateful for now? It's a practice and a prayer life is a great place to start it. But that aside, that's not what we're talking about here. This is beyond personal prayer posture of gratitude as great as that is. This is a culture having a gratitude party. They are dancing, singing, feasting, moving their bodies, and the music is loud. I thought if we love to celebrate, I love to celebrate, we love to celebrate so much, what can we learn from this people group going out and throwing a gratitude party? I've never been to a party like that at church. What am I missing? And so with this fear of missing out posture, not wanting to miss a good party, I kept rereading this passage. I know Brian said last week that if our kids can say the names of Harry Potter characters, then we can say all the names in the Bible. But I'm not going to torture you guys. This chapter is so full of names. I'm not going to torture you with my reading of this. Although I will agree with Brian, it's important. We, we read the names. But let me just take you through uh, a summarized version of chapter 12. Starting in 24, the Levites, the priests, stand in groups opposite each other and they sing songs of praise and thanksgiving back and forth like a call and response. One section responding to the other as commanded by David, the man of God. As they dedicate the wall, the Levites throughout the land come back to assist in the ceremonies. They were to take part in the joyous occasion with their songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So there's a lot of music being played that as part of the role of the people leading this is the worship leaders. Verse 30, everything is purified, the Levites, the people, and then the wall. And then they split into two groups and they go opposite directions around the wall, singing, dancing, playing this music, using instruments as prescribed by David, the man of God. So these two groups go up on the wall, walk around it with musicians and singers playing and singing loudly. And in verse 43, many sacrifices were offered on that joyous day for God had given the people cause for great joy. The women and children also participated in the celebration and the joy of the people of Jerusalem could be heard far away. They go on two more times to mention this celebratory 
uh, posture and they were following the customs as commanded by King David. So what stood out to me as I read this passage over and over over the course of the last week or so? Old Testament scholar John Golden Gay uh, pointed out that they could have easily celebrated their own achievement here. I think it's good to point this out. They bought into Nehemiah's vision. They rolled up their sleeves. They faced opposition. But they made it happen. They did the work, but they don't celebrate their own achievement here. They rejoice in what God has done. The account of the dedication presupposes the coming together of human effort and divine enabling. These two things come together. Back to week three, Dave Van Winkle talked about this, prayer and action together, divine and human acting together. Grace and ability is given by God, and the people faithfully participate. So here's why I bring this up. Where in our existing culture of celebration do we need to acknowledge God's role in our situation? How can we bring gratitude to God into that which we already are celebrating? We can pray for a situation, God, make my path clear, and then we celebrate that we got a new job, for example. I know as I was thinking about this, and we, we take God out of the celebration. It's not a posture of gratitude. We celebrate our new job. And I confess that as I thought about this, I did this just recently. We were on a road trip in an awful snowstorm. We couldn't even see the lines on the road. We were going 27 miles an hour on the highway and it was just blinding through that area uh, with that lake effect snow. Anyway, and I started praying to God that we would just arrive safely. And we had a long, long way to go. We were never gonna make it at 27 miles an hour. So we decided to pull off, get a hotel room. We made it safely into our cozy spot and we made a little uh, hotel room picnic for dinner and had a little, made it into a little celebration party. Aren't we cozy? Aren't we safe? And we didn't beg that gratitude to God for answering the prayer. It didn't even occur to me. We celebrated our safe arrival. So I'm just confessing to you all. I'm guilty of that too. Where can we bring gratitude to God into the celebrations that we already are marking in our lives? So number one, again, pointing out that they celebrated God's role in our achievements, divine and human together. But the second thing that I was noticing is how many times this passage referred to King David. I think it's five times. And so I started to go back to the story of David. And I really think that the story of David is great. And we're going to talk about a couple key things here. But one thing that just is always amazing to me. David's one of the most emotive guys I know or have read about, meaning he is just fully, fully into whatever motion he's feeling with his whole body, just feels it so intensely. You read it through the Psalms. When he is down, he is way down. He's expressive, angry, frustrated, depressed. All is lost. My soul is uh, done. Why have you forsaken me, God? It's just like really, really intense. And then we see in 2 Samuel 6, when he is uh, celebrating, when he's joyful, he does it with his whole body. So I'm going to give you just a quick little piece of the story of David's celebratory uh, bodily worship. So here's the short version. Uh, 
they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence. It's very holy, and there are rules around this before the temple in Jerusalem has been built. But they're bringing the Ark back into Jerusalem after it has been, it had been taken away and um, had been in exile and is being brought back. It's a time of great celebration. So David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, cassinets, and cymbals. They're making loud music and just rejoicing. But so the paraphrase here, as the the oxen are are bringing back in, carrying in the ark, the oxen stumble and this guy, Uzo, reaches out to steady the ark, which is a big no-no. And I can't unpack it all here, but he's, he's struck dead. God strikes him dead because he's gone against the commands. And David goes from this celebratory posture of like this big loud music and song and he becomes very angry with God. And then right after that, he is afraid of God. And so they send the ark into somebody else's home where it stays safely. And that family is blessed for three months. And then it's time they've gotten the the clear to go ahead and bring the ark back into the city. And after, okay, so I pick back up in um, 2 Samuel 6, verse 13. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, all his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. But his wife sees this and she basically scolds him for acting not kingly. It wasn't, it was embarrassing. It wasn't kingly of him. And David uh, responded to her and said, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, I'm willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. David wears all of his emotions fully before God. And he's willing to just not be embarrassed, be fully expressive. I love to imagine David so overwhelmed with joy and gratitude while this music is playing that he dances before the Lord in public the way that I dance in my kitchen when nobody is watching except my family. And they tease me because I'm not a good dancer. But I love that. It's so joyfully uninhibited, engaged in praise. And because Nehemiah 12 kept referencing David's prescribed worship, I spent a lot of time with David's story and David's words this week. It's beyond the dancing. We see how free and willing David is to engage so fully, bodily, honestly, openly with everything before God. And here's why I point this out. While I was thinking about talking of a culture of celebration, I think one of the hardest things about considering a gratitude party or nurturing a culture of intentional celebration in the goodness of God is that we are also constantly faced with very real hurt and loss and pain, our own and and that of others. But the fact is, lament, grieving over that, which is not the way it should be, that's lament. Lament and gratitude are not mutually exclusive in the human experience. Lament and gratitude are not mutually exclusive. That means that they can exist together. I'm going to read an example of David's, one of David's psalms right now, Psalm 13, and listen to his change in tone through the course of this short psalm. O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? 
How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord, my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he's good to me. This stuck out as one example of many of how David is so expressive, but ends some of these psalms by slapping on a statement like that, that uh, ends a psalm of lament. So something like this, everything's awful. My soul is beyond distress, but I'll trust God or whatever. That's how it sounded to me. I used to think that that seems disingenuous. Really? I don't, I don't know that I believe that after the words that you've said. But a few years ago, I went through a season of my own lament, and I was brought into a place of studying these psalms that had this posture, and I realized this is not a slap on of some trite churchy phrase at the end of crying out before God. Not at all. It's a statement of faith in the midst of sorrow, pain, and loss. It's a practice, like I talked about earlier, a practice to remember gratitude. It's like saying, yes, the yuck is real, but God continues to be who God has always am, and I am grateful for that. We remember to declare the goodness of the Lord, even in our yuck. In my own life, I tend to try to move too quickly out of the yuck, sadness, loss, and pain. I try to get to a silver lining or figure out a way forward without actually being willing to sit in that posture when I need to sit there. And that doesn't work. It just doesn't work. As I've gotten older, I've realized that that, that that isn't what God is asking me to do. I don't have to do that. David sat willingly in his anger, in his fear, in frustration, cried out to God, and he celebrated the faithfulness of God. And there is a time for each. In the well-known passage of Ecclesiastes 3, we read that whole section of, for everything there's a season, a time for every action under heaven. And verse four reminds us a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance. I'm not saying that we will feel both lament and gratitude simultaneously, but I think that when we see and experience the yuck and darkness, we feel like a culture of celebration isn't appropriate. And I submit to you that in community, we can hold both together. We hold both lament and gratitude with and for one another. This stood out to me very sharply and specifically this week. I was getting ready to talk about a culture of celebration. And this week in particular, several very dear friends of mine had really hard things going on. Really hard. My heart was so heavy. And I was supposed to be thinking about celebration. In Wrigleyville, one of our deacons, Kristen Stone, holds for our community what she calls tender dates. She holds them on behalf of people in memory of a significant loss or a season of, or a day that marks a sadness. Um, she does an amazing job. She enters into hurting places and painful memories with honor and mercy and tenderness. I have learned so much from Kristen. We had too many tender dates this week in Wrigleyville. And so Kristen and I were on the phone talking about ideas on how to honor our friends. And as I was reading Nehemiah 12 and considering these tender dates, listening to Kristen's leadership in that, I thought, I can't talk about celebration when my dear friends are hurting like this. But I wonder if that's a lie. 
that keeps us as the people of God from throwing more gratitude parties. Just praising God for who God is and what God has done. And I was so thankful for God's plan that as a community, we get to hold all of it, lament and gratitude together. Recently, again in Wrigleyville, a friend of mine, Sunghae Kim, recorded a testimonial. We were asking, where have you seen the faithfulness of God in this season? And she told about a time within our gospel community group where we all were just checking in. And she was able to share just really painful uh, despair that had happened recently, just such sadness in her heart, such a heavy thing. And right after that, somebody else shared a story of celebration of something really wonderful that had happened in their week. And as she said, she could experience the faithfulness of God as those two things went back to back together in community. She was strengthened, not jealous of, but strengthened by the celebration of somebody else. It's beyond carrying each other's burdens. It's a posture as a community to declare with thanksgiving about who God is and what God has done. And that's what's happening in Nehemiah 12 as they dedicate the wall. They mark the occasion with a party worth remembering. We see this in other spots too. Joshua 4, for example, the people of Israel have just crossed the Jordan River with God's help and intervention to enter into the promised land. And they stop and they put down 12 stones where they've just passed. And somebody says, why are we doing this? And the answer is so that anytime you walk by this and your children ask, what are those stones about? You can tell them about what God has done for the people. That's my paraphrase. You can read the story in Joshua 4. But it's like we we need to have something to remember to tell the story of God's faithfulness to other people so other people will know. And we see when this has failed in multiple places through scripture, but I'll just point to Judges 8, when things went wrong and the people had forgotten the Lord. It says they forgot their Lord, the Lord their God, who had rescued them for all their enemies surrounding them. The people forgot the story of God's faithfulness. And they didn't have ways to mark the remembrance of that and have that culture of celebration. And they needed to uh, remember, be told the stories again and throw gratitude parties, mark moments of celebration with declaration of God's goodness in their collective lives together as a group. Remembering the goodness of God helps us to endure when the yuck comes, when the hard times and not fall into the abyss of lament. Lament is good and right and I would say even holy, to say, here's what it is and here's where it should be and it's not okay. That's a good posture to remember to lament. But a posture of a culture of celebration also helps us hold both grief and hope together. Frustration and anger and declaration of God's goodness together. We hold them both. Back to David for a moment. I spent a lot of time in the Psalms, his specifically the uh, Psalms attributed to David this week. And he poured it all out, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The short version of his story is, yeah, David was so victorious in battle. He was just a renowned military leader and beloved king. He was victorious and famous and had all these successes. He also had to run to the hills to hide, to save his life twice from two different enemies that literally wanted to kill him. He was forced away from his home and his people to hide in the hills. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a faithful, humble leader, willing to give glory to God rather than hoard it up for himself. He also has one of the most 
epic stories of moral failure in all of scripture that culminates in adultery and murder. And he puts it all out in the Psalms before God. And along with all of that that he puts out is a constant call to expressive praise and celebratory singing and dancing to God. I'm going to read just a couple of them. Psalm 27, 6. Then I will hold my head high above my enemies who surround me. At his sanctuary, I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy, singing and praising the Lord with music. Psalm 28, 1 is this really downside. Do not turn a deaf ear to me, for if you are silent, I may, may as well give up and die. Good telling you, such an emotive person. But then later in that same Psalm 28, 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. I will trust him with all of my heart. He helps me and my heart is filled with joy. I burst out in songs of thanksgiving. Full-bodied expression, Psalm 35, 10, with every bone in my body, I will praise him. In Psalm 30, 11, you have turned my mourning into joyful dancing beyond prayers of thanksgiving, walking the perimeter of the wall in Jerusalem and Nehemiah, the whole time singing, dancing, and making music of praise. The inhibitions are down, like David dancing before the Lord. Who cares that, I, that anyone sees me? I am celebrating before the Lord a gratitude party in honor of God. Maybe you're not a big dancer, and that's okay. Actually, we don't have any record of Jesus dancing. I imagine he probably did, but it's not recorded. But constantly Jesus has the words of gratitude to God publicly when he's performing miracles, when he's teaching in parables, when he's teaching on prayer, everything. When On the walk to Gethsemane, his lips are marked with gratitude to God. And for what God has done all the time, publicly cultivating a culture of celebrating who God is and what God has done. I know it seems far away when we'll be able to sing and dance and feast together. But when we are back together, I ask us all collectively this. What would it look like to create and cultivate a culture of celebration? What does it look like to set a time sides in your family, in your uh, community groups, and in our collective life together as congregations to celebrate stories of God's faithfulness with a feast, with singing, with dancing, make a joyful noise unto the Lord in response to who God is. I'm going to leave us this morning actually with an exhortation from Michael Concepcion. I asked his permission last week we were on a call and knowing that we were going to be talking about this topic, uh, he happened to start saying something. I just took up my phone and started frantically typing his words. He has such a pastoral heart and every now and then his words just wash over me and I get this yes and amen. So I'm giving us his exhortation that he spoke last week because it's so fitting here. So from Michael to all of us, we all have so many different experiences of God's grace. We knit ourselves together as a community to share these and be built up together. We pray, then we remind each other of answered prayer. Let's not limit our testimony with one another. Let's be in the practice of hearing the faithfulness of God together. Monsieur Day, I know that's really hard right now. I've had the opportunity, especially these last couple of months, to just be reaching out a lot individually to connect and hear stories. I've heard so many stories of God's goodness, and I've heard a lot of stories of pain. 
Let's continue to hold both together, but never give up on telling stories of the faithfulness of God. Because by doing that and having a culture of celebration, we can also hold the things that are hard and that are not yet as they should be until Jesus comes back and makes all things new. And then we'll be all celebration. But until that day, let's be a people who hold both together well in community, in love, and in faithfulness to God. Amen? Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.